taxidermy. Come on, Beth. Taxidermy. Taxidermy. Come on, Beth. Taxidermy. Taxidermy. Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, we are covering more bizarreties. Bizarreties. <laughs> I can't even say I have the true crime and mom has the paranormal. I, there's none of that. I have no idea what mom's covering. She is covering a bizarre story. That is all I know. But she's going first, and I picked out a yeah. cocktail in correlation with my story. Okay, I kind of did too. <gasps> Ooh, well, we are doing this virtually. We are. This So Ooh-hoo. this week, you get bizarre stories and two cocktail recipes, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm reaching on mine. I really just really wanted to drink this oh, drink. Oh, my goodness. So. <laughs> you and your excuses for these cocktails. I know. I have an excuse to drink alcohol. I love mezcal. I just absolutely love it. Tequila, mezcal? I enjoy, but mezcal, what? I absolutely love. I love the smoky. Oh, Mezcal, it's a a type of tequila, but it's a sister to tequila, but it's really smoky. Oh, it's delish. But anyway, so I have some real cherry juice, which is supposed to be an antitoxin. So I'm making my drink healthy. Say, nod your head. Yes. Yes, you are, mom. So I took mezcal and cherry juice with a splash of sparkling water because I wanted a really red Oh, no, another red drink. But this one has nothing to do with the stoplight. (laughs) Okay, great. Now, the cocktail I'm drinking is called the Stone Sour. Oh. Okay, this is... has a name even. You're doing better than me. Mine doesn't have a name. Well, I wanted something that had to deal with my story, so I found this. It is one and a half ounces of bourbon and... I don't usually like bourbon. And and mine no, you don't. <laughs> mine's healthy too because mine has orange juice in it. <laughs> you know, I'm getting that vitamin C. Okay, mom, this is your turn to nod. Yes. I'm with yes, it. You I'm are. with it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you have an ounce of orange juice freshly squeezed, one ounce oh. of simple syrup, three fourths ounce of lemon juice freshly squeezed. Ah, you're getting some more oh. antioxidants there. <laughs> And you garnish with the cherry. I actually did garnish with the cherry because I got those maraschino cherries for one of our cocktails we did. So it was in my fridge and I said, I can actually garnish this one. And hey, they'll last forever. (laughs) In mom's fridge, they will. (laughs) Okay, so my cocktail's really good. How's your yours cocktail? Wow. (laughs) Yours is really good. This is going to go over very well. Mine is also very good. I have to not lie to you. It's my second one. This I had is, one with dinner too. This is my first, but I, I really like the, the, when you add the citrus to the bourbon or the whiskey or whatever you're drinking it with, it really helps cut back on that taste. And so I, I do, mm-hmm. I really like it with the orange juice and the lemon juice. It's, it's pretty tasty. And which we have discovered fresh lemon or Oh, the fresh is the way to go. Makes the biggest difference. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so <sighs> before we jump into stories, I have to tell you a fun story. We were sitting at dinner, and I saw this bird, like, out of the corner of my eye through the window at the dinner table. This, I just saw these, like, big black wings, and they kept, like, going down and up and down and up. And I was like, yeah. oh, no, what is happening over there? And I look, and there is a bunny rabbit, and huh? this, it's like a, it's a, a bunny rabbit, a rabbit, 
a bunny rabbit. She sounded so cute. You can tell I was with toddlers <laughs> at the time. But there was a rabbit and this all I just saw this like bird going down at it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, <gasps> it's a hawk. That's what I thought, because it was like a big wingspan. And I only saw it out of the corner of my eye. I was like, I'm about to witness a murder right now. <laughs> and so I like screech and Alex is like, oh, my gosh, Beth, what's happening? W- what's going on? And I said, oh, bunny, bunny. And so we all turn and look <laughs> out the window and it was a crow. And Ew. OK, the story is about to get very bizarre. So then this crow is sitting on the fence. It was the other way around. The bunny was jumping up the fence, <laughs> like trying to get the crow. And then the crow flew into the person's backyard onto the grass. Looked like it was trying to get something out of the grass. And the bunny chased it down. The bunny no just came way. running at the crow. And then the crow jumped back on the fence. And then it went somewhere, flew and landed somewhere else in the yard. And the bunny chased it down again. I Ooh. swear to God, this bunny was like jumping up the fence trying to get <laughs> the crow. And we're all just... The evil bunny. We're just sitting here watching this happen. Like Alex and I are looking at each other like, what is going on? It was the craziest thing I had ever... It was so crazy, mom. It made no sense. Alex just kept trying to tell the boys like, oh, the bunny's playing with the bird. But I'm like, I think think the bunny has like rabies or something. Like what is happening? But the bird (laughs) wasn't flying away. Oh, maybe they were playing. Maybe it was like watching a Disney movie right there in my backyard. <laughs> Instead of the fox and the hound, it's the crow and the bunny. It's the bunny. <laughs> the crow and the hare, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Good story. That's a bizarre story right there. We're done. Good night. Cheers, mama. <laughs> Are you ready? All right. You're going to start. And by the way, you're prefacing this. I'm scared. No, don't be scared. But you know what? I Before I start, I can't believe that we've already done 10 episodes since 100. I was thinking about that today. Yeah, this is 110. It's, time just goes really fast. I mean, it just goes really fast, you know? I know. It does. So, And we didn't have, we have two cocktails this week, but we didn't have anybody buy us a cocktail this week. So come on, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it doesn't stop us from having one, but. <laughs> or two for mom. <laughs> two for me i'm recording nearby my kitchen though i could easily go and access another cocktail much easier you just leave me yeah just leave me just keep talking mom i'm go. gonna step in there and make the a listeners cocktail will never know <laughs> right so my story is a, actually a true crime story from australia okay well then happy you're but- starting because mine's more paranormal. So I guess we're going to stick to the normal platform of... Boom! <laughs> we did it. True crime okay. first, paranormal last. <laughs> okay, Beth and listeners, I have to warn you that what you're going to hear is very disturbing and very gruesome, but that comes towards the end of my episode. Your episode so, or your story? I, my episode. Now <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is mom's episode. <laughs> my story. I'll warn you. Okay. First, let me introduce you to Catherine Marie Knight. She and her twin Joy were born on October 24th, 1955 in Tenterfield, New South Wales. The family, two parents and eight kids, moved to Aberdeen 
a small coal and cattle town in 1969. Catherine, we're going to call her Kathy from now on, was very close to her twin and to her mother. As far as her years growing up, a lot of the sources out there say that her father was an alcoholic and very violent. He would beat up his wife and rape her, and the children were all very aware of this. Oh, geez. But I'm going to be a little hesitant on this, okay? Um, So Sandra Lee, who is the author of the book Beyond Bad, said in her interview on the podcast True Crime Conversation that there really was no evidence that Ken Knight, Kathy's father, was a violent man and that he raped her mother. There was no evidence of that. The other children never said that that happened. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's why I'm a little, even though sources say that, but this woman who wrote the book actually had conversations with family members. Could they have been scared of him, though, that they didn't want to come forward? No, no, this is, he's already passed away. Oh, interesting. Kathy also stated many times that she was sexually abused by male relatives, not her father, up to the age of 11. According to Sandra Lee, There is also no evidence to support that statement either. Oh. Okay. Okay. So putting this out there, we don't really know. Okay. Yes, there are accounts of drinking, yelling, and some violence between the parents. But all in all, it seems to me that Kathy grew up in a very loving home. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, a flip who, of the coin there. You have one or the it other. It is. I mean, who knows what the truth is here? Kathy's brother actually described Kathy as loving and kind when she was younger. She would care for an injured animal she found, tending to it until it was well, and then setting it free. At school, Kathy was somewhat of a loner, just hanging around with her sister Joy. She was a nice girl until she wasn't. If someone crossed her or she didn't get what she wanted, she turned on the person using nasty language and her fists. Tears described her as a, quote, model student, which is odd (laughs) because... Because she beat people up or... (laughs) No, Kathy dropped out of school at 15, not being able to read or write very well. So I don't know where the model student, unless it was behavior and they didn't see her beating kids up and being, you know, bossy and... What the heck? Bullying kids. I mean, you know, they called her a bully. So, so far, mom, I have no idea what to believe in any of this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Oh, All right. After she dropped out at 15, she went to work at a clothing factory for a year and then got hired to her dream job at the Arberdeen Abattoir. Now, I didn't know what an abattoir was. And looking at your face, you don't either. It's a slaughterhouse. Oh, I was going to ask if it had to deal with plants. (laughs) No, not plants. (laughs) She started off in the offal cutter as an offal cutter, which That is, cutting up organs and entrails of butchered animals. This was her dream job? This is her dream job. But she was quickly promoted to the boning department. And this was the cutting cutting the meat off the bones of the animals. Now, this was a very physical and hard job. 
but she absolutely loved this position, especially since she was given her own set of knives, which were her prize possession. Those knives were always with her, always. She hung the set over her bed at night, and she continued this lovely habit until she was arrested. Okay. All right, Kathy met David Kellett at the Abitrar in 1973. They were married in 74. The day of the wedding, the couple arrived at the service on Kathy's motorcycle with a very drunk David hanging on for dear life. Oh, boy. <laughs> so Kathy's mother had warned David before the wedding. In fact, it was at their engagement. She said, watch her. Stir her up the wrong way and she'll effing kill you. She's got a screw loose somewhere. Oh, my gosh. That's her mother. And that was Obi. (laughs) And that was Obi, backing up my words. Her words came to fruition on the couple's wedding night. Fruition? Fruition. 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 Oh, that's a new word for me. Okay. (laughs) The couple had sex two times and David fell asleep. He'd had a lot to drink. It was a long day. He already was drunk when he came to the wedding. Then they had the reception. He drank even more. So he was pretty much plastered. So it's probably lucky that he even had sex two times, right? Mother. But God. <laughs> he awoke with Kathy sitting on him, strangling him with her hands around his neck. Why? Well, the couple had only had sex two times. And Kathy had always been told that her parents on their wedding night had had sex five times. So already David had failed her. I'm highly uncomfortable right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to dip away to the kitchen and make that cocktail now. (laughs) Shortly after the wedding, David's sister moved in with a couple for just a few months. She described Kathy as very charming and quite lovely but went on to say that Kathy's moods could change very quickly. One minute she was cleaning the house, humming, and the next something had ticked her off and she would fly into a wild rage. The marriage was very violent, especially on Kathy's part. She would lay into David, who, by the way, was like a head shorter than she was. The verbal abuse would soon escalate to actual physical abuse. For example... One night, David came home late from the pub. He had been in a dart tournament, and since he was winning, he wanted to stay to the end. When he walked into the house, Kathy pounced on him, hitting him over the head with a skillet. He made it it to the neighbor's house before he collapsed and ended up in the hospital with a fractured skull. Oh my gosh. Now, did I mention that Kathy was very physically strong? And when she was angry, her strength seemed to increase. So remember the job she had. She had to be strong to do that. Yeah. Police wanted to charge her, but she used her charm on her husband and he dropped the charges. After being hit in the head of the skillet? Oh, yeah. In May 1976, the couple had their first child, Melissa Ann. Two months later, David left Kathy for another woman and moved with the other woman to Queensland. I'm surprised he had the guts to do that. I know. Kathy lost it. She was seen violently pushing the baby stroller with little Melissa in it. 
on the uh, sidewalk, of course, by the stores, but she was like pushing it from one side to the other, to the other, to the other. And it got to like, people thought she was going to push the carriage into the oncoming traffic. She was just being so erratic. Oh, I hate that. She was admitted to St. Elmo's Mental Hospital and was diagnosed with postpartum depression. She stayed in the hospital for two weeks. After her return home and still no David, she decided to get his attention another way. She laid 12-week-old Melissa on the railroad tracks, (gasps) leaving her there. Uh, Fortunately, (laughs) the baby was saved some say in the nick of time, by a man foraging along the tracks. Oh my God, my heart like stopped. Kathy never saw the rescue because at the time of the rescue, she was going through town swinging an axe, threatening to kill people. What? What? I mean, she just dropped her baby on the railroad tracks and left and went and grabbed an axe and started going ballistic in town. Again, she was put into the mental hospital, but signed herself out the next day. So they let her after all of that. They just said, oh, oh, you want to go? Okay, just sign here. Just sign on the dotted line. Bye bye. So that'll happen within like a 24 hour period. But we're not done yet. A few days later, Kathy turned up on her neighbor's doorstep pleading for a ride to the hospital, saying that Melissa was very sick. She got her baby back, too. Yeah. Uh, When the neighbor came to the door to pick her up. Kathy chased her with a knife and ended up slicing her face. Somehow, and I don't know how she did this because nothing was going into detail, but she took the family, the whole family, mother, father, this teenage girl that she sliced her face and uh, a little boy. She took them hostage and said that she wanted to ride to David's mother's house. She told the family she was going to kill both David and his mother. Along the way, they had to stop for gas at a gas station. A member of the family, the little boy, was able to escape and called the police. It took two policemen and the station's attendant to restrain Kathy. That's how strong she was. Oh, my gosh. She was not charged, but instead sent once again to the mental hospital. After being told all that had happened, David left his girlfriend in Queensland, who, by the way, was pregnant with his baby. Of course. He left her. And Kathy was released from the hospital on August 9th into the care of David and his mother. The people that he was after to kill. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the couple now moved to Woodridge outside of Brisbane. Kathy started a job at the meat company there. Four years later, on March 6th, 1980, the couple had another daughter, Natasha Marie. That sounds like a great idea. (laughs) David's job at this time was driving a truck, and he was away a lot of the time. Kathy was convinced he had a woman every place he drove. She had had enough. And in 1984, she moved out. She and her daughters moved back to Aberdeen, where Kathy worked at the abattoir. A year later, she injured her back at work and went on disability pension. In 1986, Kathy met David Saunders, a coal miner. Their quote, honeymoon period. They weren't married, but their honeymoon period lasted only a few months. Saunders had his own apartment, but would often stay with Kathy and her daughters. Kathy became increasingly jealous, accusing Saunders of having affairs. One night, Saunders did the big mistake of coming home a few minutes late. Kathy was ironing when he walked through the door. She smashed the hot iron onto his face. Oh! 
I was not expecting that. Forget this. Oh, no. He came back to her. Oh, my gosh. Well, Skillet Man came back, too. Yeah. In May 1987, Kathy, once again, suspected Saunders of having an affair. So to get back at him, she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo puppy while he was looking on. Not the dingo. He was unable to do anything because it happened so fast. (gasps) This is horrible. This lady is horrible. She keeps getting away with all of this stuff. You haven't heard anything yet, honey. Even though Saunders was afraid of Kathy, he stayed with her. And in June 1988, Kathy gave birth to a daughter number three, Sarah. Saunders and Kathy bought a house and they lived together as a family. Now, Kathy's style of decorating was a bit macabre. Macabre? What does that mean? Like, well, you'll figure it out. There were animal skins throughout the house, as well as animal skulls, horns, stuffed animal heads, machetes, old rusted animal traps. Stuffed animal heads? Like from stuffed animals? (laughs) Why? Why? Why would you do that? Mom. Taxidermy. Oh, I honestly thought she was like hanging up Mickey Mouse's head all over the place. (laughs) Teddy bears. And it's like, that is terrifying. That's very macabre. Isn't that the word you used? Yeah. See, now you know what macabre means. I get it now. It's just really horrifying. This one source I read said that there was not an inch of space that was not covered with something including the ceiling. Oh. When I say she was surrounded by these things, she was literally surrounded by them. This is bizarre. She was pretty much fascinated with death. Even when she was little, she was. After another violent fight where Kathy actually stabbed Saunders in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Sure, 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 sure. He took leave from work and went into hiding. (laughs) I don't blame him. After several months, he came back to see his daughter, but found out that Kathy had gone to the police claiming that Saunders was very violent and she was scared of him for herself and her children. They believed her? Yep. And they issued a restraining order against him. Oh. Uh, the next man in Kathy's life was former arbitrator co-worker John Chillingworth. They had baby boy, Eric, in 1991. This woman should not be able to procreate. A year after they got together. Now, this relationship only lasted three years. Kathy left Chillingworth for a man she had been having an affair with while she was with Chillingworth. And this man's name is John Price, and his nickname is Pricey. John was described as hardworking and hard drinking. He had an ex-wife and three children who he absolutely adored. His two-year-old daughter lived with his ex, but his older son and daughter lived with him. On all accounts, Pricey was a great guy with a lot of friends. He was helpful and kind. He was fun to be with, and he loved to laugh. Now, Pricey, he knew about Kathy's temper. By this time, everyone in town pretty much knew about it. I mean, she went through town with an axe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but this did not stop him. I They weren't in Aberdeen when she did that. Oh, okay. But... This didn't stop him from having a relationship with her. Besides some knockdown, drag out fights, and Pricey gave as good as he got from Kathy, they had a good thing going. 
But remember, Kathy was really into retribution. So in this relationship, she went after the people Pricey cherished, his children. She didn't do anything physically to them, but totally messed with them mentally. For example, when his daughter, who was 13 at the time, came home from school one day, Kathy sat her down at the kitchen table. They were alone at home. And she told her that John was not her real father. You're kidding. Her mother had had an affair and had gotten pregnant. Kathy just thought that she should know the truth. It was a lie. It was totally made up. She just messed with people this way. But to a 13-year-old? Like, oh my gosh. Yep. So from what I got out of the research, Kathy and John did a lot of drinking and had a lot of sex. I think that's actually what held the relationship together. (laughs) Not a really strong glue, but that's what it was. Pricey had a great job working in the mines and was making really good money until 1998 when the couple got into yet another big fight about getting married. Kathy wanted to get married. John did not. So to get even, Kathy decided to mess with John's life. She had found some... Now, this is the story that is everywhere. I don't really understand it. So you can ask me a question, but I'm not guaranteed to give you an answer, okay? Okay. (laughs) She had found some medical kits that were from Pricey's work, okay? And she videotaped them, and she sent the videotape to both the police and to Pricey's boss saying, look, I have evidence that he stole these. I don't, they must have been high end medical kits or something. I don't know. But the thing is, the medical kits were expired and he got them out of the trash. That's the truth of the story. But why did he have them? They were medical kits. They were very usable, but they couldn't use them, I guess, on the job site. Okay. He lost his job. John sent Kathy packing, so she moved back into her house with her macabre decor, and it only took a few months, and guess what? He took her back. Oh, my gosh. Where are her children at this time? Where are her children? Two of them were grown, and the other two were going to school. So, but they were, the the youngest ones were still living with her. Oh, my gosh. But he did not let her move into his house. I mean, she would stay the night or whatever, but she was not allowed to move into his house. By this time, Kathy's children were at school all day and she was still on disability. So she would spend her time watching movies. Not just any genre, mind you. She loved horror movies. The bloodier, the better. Oh, God. She would watch death as she was surrounded by death with her strange decor. And then her stuffed animals on the walls. (laughs) With her teddy bears on the walls. (laughs) Kathy became more and more violent. John, at this point, was scared. He wanted, but couldn't get rid of this woman. On Sunday, February 27th, John admitted to his friends that, quote, the speckled hen, which is his nickname for her, was nuts. He then showed them the scars on his body where Kathy had stabbed him. On Monday, he went to the court for a restraining order to keep her away from him and his children. His friends begged him not to go back to the house that night, but he was afraid of what she would do to his children. When he got home, he found the house empty. Kathy had sent the children to a friend's house for a sleepover. 
He went to the neighbor's house for a couple of beers, and while there, he told his neighbor, as he had his friends, that if his car was still in the driveway the next morning, that means he hadn't gone to work. And that means he was dead. Oh, my gosh. He returned home and went to bed at around 11 p.m. As for Kathy, she spent that Monday with her children, hugging them and kissing them and loving on them. And then she made a video that, in hindsight, could be perceived as a last will. She bought some sexy black lingerie. She let herself into Pricey's house at around mm, 11.30. She watched TV for a short time, took a shower, dressed in her new black outfit, and woke Pricey up. They had sex, and Price fell back to sleep. The next morning, Price was not at work. And when I say at work, I'm thinking that the mine hired him back because they were like, he's, yeah. he's always the first person here. You know, all the time we've known him, he's never been late. He's always the first person, no matter if he tied up. You know, tied one on the night before. He's still always the first one here. So I'm thinking the mine hired him back. Yeah. Okay. But I never saw anything in writing on that. The boss called Pricey, but got no answer. So worried, he sent a co-worker to John's house. By this time, the neighbor had also noticed that John's car was still in the driveway. Oh, gosh. So together, he and the co-worker knocked on the front door of the house. All was quiet. But then they noticed blood on the doorknob. They immediately called the police. The police arrived at the house around 8 a.m. Crap, crap, crap. They broke through the locked back door, and what greeted them inside the house is a scene that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. Okay, so I will tell you that everything that I'm going to say now is listener's discretion, okay? It's gruesome. And I have to sit here? Maybe this is when I should go make my cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. When the detectives entered the house, they saw what they thought was a blanket or a wetsuit hanging from the top of a door frame no, to the floor. No. As one of the detectives pushed the object aside to go into a room, he felt something wet on his arm and hand. He looked down. He was covered with blood. Oh my God. On closer inspection of the hanging object, they saw that it was not a blanket or wetsuit, but rather a complete human skin. Oh my God. Or pelt. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There was a meat hook piercing through the top of the head area, and the other end of the meat hook was over the top of the door frame. There was black curly hair on the top. There was a nose and part of the mouth and the ear. It was obvious that the skin had been cut away from the body with a very sharp knife. There were also a number of stab wounds to the skin below the head area. A headless and skinless body lay on the floor. The left ankle crossed across the right. The muscles and organs on the body were exposed with a number of wounds on the body, including a stab wound to the left side of the chest into the chest cavity. The victim had been killed prior to being skinned, thank God, and from the blood staining around the body, it was determined that the body was skinned before it was beheaded. The detective could see that the head had been cut very precisely with a very sharp instrument. Looking around the room where the body lay, the detective saw laying on a small cabinet, a broken pitcher frame. The pitcher was that of the victim, John Price. And lying on top of the frame was a bloody wristwatch. And for some reason, that just broke my heart. Because here's the watch that this guy had worn day in and day out, and it carried his blood, and it had been taken off probably before she skinned him. 
and it was just lying on his broken pitcher, praying. Oh, my gosh. At this point, there's a skinned body on the floor, a human skin hanging from the doorframe, and lots and lots of blood everywhere, from the bedroom to the front door. That's my red drink. Mom! There was a piece of cooked meat found in the backyard that had been bagged for evidence, no. but no. no head. They could not find the head. The detectives followed the blood trail to the kitchen. There he saw a large pot on the stove no. and two plates that were set out as if for lunch or dinner. Oh my gosh. Each plate had two pieces of cooked meat. The meat looked like it was the same as was found outside in the yard. A baked potato, baked pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. Underneath the plates were two handwritten notes. The only thing that has been released to the public from those notes is that one had Beaky written on it and the other had Jonathan. And those were the names of Pricey's children. <gasps> were the kids okay? Yeah. they. She had sent them to a friend's house okay. to sleep. Over, so... But Not that this didn't traumatize them at all, but still. She was serving them this meal. Feeling the side of the large pot that was on the stove, the detective discovered it to be still slightly warm. Lifting the lid, the detective found the missing skinned head floating in the warm liquid along with sliced potatoes, onions, and carrots. <laughs> you have nothing, do you? You have nothing, have nothing to tell to me. Say. No. The police who first responded to the welfare call about John heard snoring coming from the back of the house. When entering the room, the bedroom, they found Kathy sound asleep. They tried to wake her but couldn't. She had taken a number of pills and was out cold. An ambulance was called and Kathy was taken to the hospital. And from what I read, this was not a clear sign of a suicide attempt. Kathy had only taken a minimal amount of each medicine, and when she mixed the medicines up, it just kind of knocked her out. Oh, my gosh. But it wasn't enough to kill her. According to the pathologist who performed the autopsy, Price was stabbed no less than 37 times, and it would have taken the killer about 40 minutes to skin the body, decapitate it, and hang the skin, during which the killer would have been covered with blood oh yeah the meat that was found outside in the yard and on the two plates those were slices carved from john price's buttocks so she had made fillets out of them so she was essentially making like meals for his children of that's disgusting mm -hmm. uh, not that i mean they weren't home and right it i understand wasn't like they were even going to come home but still it's just that idea of psychology of this yeah. is so warped. Kathy insisted that she did not remember anything after having great sex with John the night before. This totally did not ring true, and to add to the impossibility of this story, it was discovered that after John had been killed, Kathy had showered, gone into town, about a 15-minute drive, had stopped at an ATM machine, and at 2.32 had withdrawn $500 from John's account, and then another $500 at 2.40 a.m. It is thought that she then returned to John's house, smoked a cigarette, cooked the stew, and shortly before the police entered the house, she took the pills. Now, remember, the stew pot was still warm. a little warm mm -hmm. to touch. 
Kathy claimed that she could not remember the events. Maybe she did. Who knows? However, at her trial on October 18th, 2001, Kathy did plead guilty so as to save John's family from hearing the gruesome details of his death. Wow, that's one good thing she did. Now, she pled guilty but still didn't take any responsibility for the killing and showed absolutely no remorse. So at her trial, her lawyers begged the court that because they had to still, even though there wasn't a jury there, they still had to kind of go through the the process of the trial so the judge could hear everything. So they showed pictures of the crime scene. Oh, gosh. And her lawyers pleaded that she didn't have to sit through that. And the <gasps> judge said, uh-uh. Oh, heck uh-uh. no. She will stay here. And I guess they started showing it, and she totally lost it. She was screaming and crying and throwing herself, and they had to sedate her and take her out. Take her out, man. <laughs> I do not feel sorry for that woman one bit. I would have forced her eyes open with clothespins to make her look at those pictures. She's <laughs> disgusting. At the trial, Kathy's brother testified against her, saying that Kathy had actually told him shortly before John's death that she would kill Price and pretend insanity, thus ensuring that she would get away with it. This only enforced the notion that John's murder was premeditated. As for the insanity, mm. Three different psychiatrists came to the conclusion that Kathy had a personality disorder. I think we can give her that. I think that's pretty clear, yeah. But she was not insane. Kathy received her sentence on November 8th of life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge demanded that her papers read, quote, never to be released. And she is actually the first woman in Australia to receive a life without parole sentence. That's fascinating. In June 2006, Kathy did appeal the sentence, saying that it was too severe for the killing. My gosh, are you kidding me? The appeal was denied. Justice McKellen, one of the appeal justices, said, quote, This was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. Kathy Knight is in the Mullawa Women's Correctional Center. On all accounts, she's actually doing very well and is referred to by the inmates as Nana. Another model student. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe that she just needs to be institutionalized or something. I don't know. Uh, She refuses to give any interviews stating that she doesn't want to sullen John's name. Like, she's worried about that after everything after that she's she done did? to him. Are you kidding me? Yeah. The police, detectives, and crime scene investigators that were at Price's scene were all affected by what they saw. They all had to have counseling for PTSD. And one of the CSI guys actually left his job for a half a year to work through his trauma. I cannot imagine. It definitely has put a a lasting consequence on these people. Now, I will mention that no one knows for sure (laughs) if Kathy ate any of what she cooked that horrible morning. Okay, so some people refer to her as the female cannibal lector, but nobody knows for sure whether she ate any of what she cooked. The general consensus is that she ate some of the meat so John's buttocks, but was so grossed out that she threw the contents of her plate into the yard. 
and then perhaps blocked everything out of her mind. But I guess this is something that we'll never know. We'll never, ever know. Oh, my gosh. I don't I don't even want to know. I'm sorry, mom, but I'm just going to pretend like I never heard that story. <laughs> Was that bizarre enough for you? Oh, my gosh. <sighs> I'm sorry. I had to. I know it's gross, but I just. It was like, sorry, I had to, I had to gross you out. <laughs> One turn after the other was just like, what? What did I just read? What? What she I mean, did? I just can't her believe baby on the railroad she tracks? put a baby what? on the railroad what? track, ran around town with an axe. But then the next day they're like, oh, here's your baby back. That just, it, that doesn't baby make back, any. Baby back, baby back, baby <laughs> back. <laughs> okay. I'm going to take a big gulp of my cocktail, finish it off. And you know what's? absolutely crazy is these men kept returning to her they kept going back to her and none of them would ever report it to the police now there's a reason for that these guys were you know brawny australian dudes you know and and back in those days men did not admit to being abused by their women even today i think it's a little unsettling for a man to admit to police that his wife or his girlfriend beat him up Oh, you just made me think but about the Johnny Depp trials. Oh, I guess she um she really enjoyed sex and she really used that as leverage. So that is really one of the main reasons these guys went back to her is because for the sex. Crazy story all the way around. So happy I could share it with you. <laughs> Great. Thanks, mom. We're going to move on and we're going to move on pretty quickly to the paranormal. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> We're going to take a big leap across the pond. I'm ready because I've been with this story for like three days now. So oh I'm ready. Gosh. To leave, it. leave it far, far behind because we are heading 100 miles southeast of Atlanta, Georgia. We are going to be just outside the small town of Elberton, Georgia. And I have quite the mystery for you. Ooh. Here off Highway 77 in a grazing pasture, sits a monument. It stands 20 feet tall and has a history that is absolutely befuddling. That's your word, right? <laughs> it is. I love to be befuddled. <laughs> it was created with astronomical calculations to read the sun. It's inscribed in 12 different languages. The inscription itself is a mystery. The design is a mystery. And even the why and the who created it is all a mystery. What is it with you and these mysterious monuments? Ooh. I am going to share <laughs> with you all the story of America's Stonehenge, the Georgia Guidestones. Elberton, Georgia. It's a smaller town, but it is known as the granite capital of the world because it sits oh. on a huge granite quarry. The town itself has had many monuments and has sold stone to many monuments. What? Sold stone to many monuments? Oh, for many monuments. Shouldn't have had that second cocktail. Shoot. Teddy bear on the wall. They make a lot of monuments, okay? And I guess they have this really pretty blue. They're known for their like blue gray stone. Oh, that's pretty pricey. That would be pretty. And so yeah. that's, they're known for their granite. Okay, got it. That's what put them on the map. Okay. Yep, you're, you're with me. <laughs> 
Another thing to mention, and I only make mention of it because of all the theories and stories that have been told about the group, but Elberton was home to many Freemasons. There was a local Shriners Club that many Masons were a part of, and I think the granite and the Masons kind of go hand in hand. Freemasons are stone workers, and I think Mm -hmm. maybe one day we should go into more on the Freemasons. They're, They're very fascinating. But basically... They are a fraternal order, and it's essentially a secret society that has been around since the end of the 13th century. Oh, wow. That late. Okay. It's a secret society, and it's the secret part that has created all the mystique and questions about the group. So anyway, just I'm just mentioning that because it doesn't necessarily play a part in the story. Maybe it does, kind of depending on your theories in the end. I, this is probably a stupid question. I don't know very much about the Masons, but is it a a, a men's society? Yes, it's like a fr- it's a fraternal order, so it's just men only. Okay, so there's no mimen. Okay, so there's no mimen. Gotcha. Yep. <laughs> there's no mimen. 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 I was gonna let it slide, but I'm gonna get you back for your story. Okay, now for my story. Got the background. I set the setting okay. for you. Here we go. One early summer's day in June 1979, Joseph Fendley was at work. It was any normal day at the Elberton Granite Finishing Company that he owned and operated. His company worked to sell the granite wholesale to companies, creating things like tombstones or monuments all over the country. Joe is busy at work when a man walks into his office. Now, like I mentioned, the town of Elberton was small. And this man was a stranger to Joe. He was middle-aged with graying hair, and he wore a nice, expensive suit. Perhaps this was a businessman of some kind from Atlanta. There were no appointments on the books, and it was very rare for someone to just come into the offices, though. Walk in. Right. The dapper-dressed man introduced himself as R.C. Christian, but made it pretty clear that that wasn't his real name. (laughs) I think he said, I'm not going to tell you my name, but I'm going to go by R.C. Christian. The men shook hands and Fenley welcomed him into his office. Christian explained that he was from out of town and that he wanted to build a monument. Joe explained that's not really how his company worked. He worked for large projects and sold to contractors and such. Oh, Christian was adamant that this project would be a big project. He claimed that he represented a small group of loyal Americans who believed in God and said they wanted to build a monument as a message to future generations. The Elberton Shriners Club, a club Fendley was a part of, had to be in on this joke. This man was proposing a huge monument for the betterment of all mankind. Christian had a shoebox with carved wooden pieces in it a small replica of what he wanted created. The monument was to have four large 16-foot-high slabs. On each side, in all different languages, he had a long statement he wanted engraved. Now, the slabs were to be placed in an X-like formation. There would be a large pillar in the center and a large capstone on the top of the pillar that would connect the slabs to the center pillar. So from the sky, the monument would look like a giant X. From the top of the capstone to the ground would be 20 feet. 
The man had details of the monument you wouldn't believe. It was to have astronomical features, and the languages ranged from Egyptian hieroglyphics to Russian, Swahili, and Chinese. Wow. Twelve different languages in all, written on all the stones. Fendley was still sure this was a joke. This would cost the man and his quote-unquote group hundreds of thousands of dollars. But the man was steadfast in his request. So Fendley wrote up an estimate of the costs. Because of the logistics and the calculations that were needed, he even gave the mysterious R.C. Christian an overpriced estimate. The stranger didn't even flinch at the quote. He just asked for the information of the local bank so that he could go start on transferring funds for the build to commence. Jeez. Fendley gave Christian the name Wyatt Martin, who was the Granite City Bank president, and the mysterious stranger headed to the bank. There in the bank president's office, R.C. Christian shared the details of the monument he and his group needed built. He explained it was for future generations and was for all mankind. Christian explained his philosophy. Philopopipi. <laughs> I was doing so well. You were. <laughs> well, Christian explained his philosophy behind the project was that he had been all over the world and he had seen the poorest of countries. This had been a 20-year project in the making and he and his group of like-minded men wanted to create this monument for the betterment of mankind. When Christian told Martin the quote that he had gotten for the project, Martin laughed. He was like, if you want betterment for mankind, why don't you just go and yeah, do something? <laughs> he said, why don't you just throw that large sum of money out in the streets of Elberton? You'd be helping a lot of people around here with that money. No kidding. How's a monument supposed to help mankind? Christian just looked at Martin and stated, you just don't understand the concept of what I am trying to do. Martin told Christian that he would talk things over with Fenley over at the Granite Company, and they arranged another meeting for the following week. Christian obliged and left. Martin, like Fenley, was convinced this was all a, a joke. joke. But that following week, R.C. Christian arrived for his meeting with the bank president just as planned, and the men both had some conditions before they moved forward. Martin needed R.C. Christian's real name if they were to move forward with anything legally. Uh-oh. And R.C. Christian wanted he and his group to remain anonymous. Mm. We've got a stumbling block. But they agreed on some conditions. He agreed that he would share his real identity with Martin if Martin swore to never reveal his identity to anybody ever. The men both agreed and put it in writing. And the project began. Martin worked as a liaison of sorts for Christian. He stayed on top of the project. And when they needed money, he would reach out to Christian, who never like stayed in town or anything during the build. But he would reach out to Christian and Christian would just send the money. And once the first $10,000 was transferred in, it was an absolute go. This is going to be a huge project. And originally Christian wanted the monument to be built out in Hancock County, a ways from Elberton. He said based on the astronomical features he wanted, the monument had to be out there because it aligned better with the sun. I don't know. Okay. But he basically wanted the monument to be built on the crest of a hill, and he wanted it surrounded by uninhabited land. 
he didn't necessarily he didn't want it hidden but he wanted a wide space around the monument all of the men that were constructing it as well as these like high-end officials and like politicians and stuff they were like um this is going to be a huge expensive very mysterious monument i want this in elberton because this is going to bring like people, right. tons of attention. Yeah, it's going to bring all the people in. So you had a lot of prosperous Elberton businessmen and politicians kind of working behind the scenes in this. They were all trying to kind of convince Christian to have it built in Elberton. Mm-hmm. And Martin tried to convince that too. He agreed that he wanted it in Elberton too. And he explained that it was going to be really expensive to transport it anywhere because the slabs were just so big Mm -hmm. so he basically gave two reasons that one christian over to build it in elberton the first one was that he told christian that the native cherokee tribe called elberton the center of the world oh if this is true i have no idea but that's what he told christian that's that's a good we're going with it and the biggest reason were the words free shipping (laughs) Thanks, I mean, shipping always gets everybody. That gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> so Martin would look around the area for plots of land, and then Christian would kind of fly out and look at the list of you know land that that Martin had pinned out for him. Mm-hmm. They look at place after place, but no decision was being made. And all the money was in. The work just needed to start. And the owner of the construction crew, Wayne Mullinex, he set up a meeting with Fendley, and he's like, Dude, we need to get going. I need to pour the cement. Like, we are going to run behind here. Everything is ready. We need to pick a location. So why don't you just show them my land? Mullinex had a large ranch. Uh, It was called Double Seven Farms. And it was off Highway 77. And he's like, I will sell you a cow pasture. I think I have the perfect location. So a few days later, Christian comes out, views the land, and he told Martin to move forward. He told him to purchase five acres and this is it. We're going to do this. And it's interesting because Mullinix never met R.C. Christian. Oh. So I thought that was really interesting. But he sold his land to him. Yep. So now we have the location. It was a perfect location. It was on a hilltop with a 360 view of Elberton County. There are many different men working on the specifics that Christian had on the monument. There was many details. They had to reach out to university professors and professionals in many fields. The directions that Christian gave for the construction of the monument were so specific. Like the middle pillar had this hole drilled in it. And I'm going to send you a picture so you can see what I'm talking about. So at eye level, there's a hole drilled into the pillar. Mm -hmm. And the hole is made larger like a slit on the other side. I see it, yeah. But this had to be aligned perfectly because it's in correlation with the sun. Oh, really? This You look through it and you can see where it, the sun lands on that slit. So you could tell basically if there were some big catastrophic event, if you could read the sun's placement, you could basically rewrite the calendar. Okay. It's a little confusing, but okay. He also had another hole in the pillar that would look at the North Star. So then basically you could create a map knowing where north was south was east oh, west sure sure so you could make the time you could make a map you could make a calendar all by the placement of this pillar and how the sun would come into these holes he had made 
So he needed like very smart people <laughs> that didn't have two cocktails to create this. They had to be precise. So before I mentioned that he needed the engravings. So starting at the top on the four sides of the capstone, there's a message that's written in Babylonian, classic Greek, Sanskrit, and ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Oh. And it says, let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Okay. So that's what it says on those four sides of the capstone up top. Gotcha. Yeah. And then on the four slabs that created the X, Mm -hmm. there was an engraving as well on each side. So there's eight sides total. And they were written all in different languages. Mm-hmm. So on one slab side, it had it in English. But on the other side, it had Spanish. Mm-hmm. They also had Arabic, Chinese, Hindu, Hebrew, Swahili, and Russian. Wow. So this is what the message stated. And I apologize. It is a bit longer, but I have to read it. It says, one, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Two, guide reproductive wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Three, unite humanity with a living new language. Four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Five, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court seven avoid petty laws and useless officials (laughs) eight balance personal rights with social duties nine prize truth beauty love seeking harmony with the infinite ten be not a cancer on the earth leave room for nature leave room for nature wow So many questions about all of this. There's so many theories about what everything means. Basically, the biggest thing that a lot of people talk about is the maintaining human under 500 million. Right. I mean, at this point, when this was created in 1979, 1980, there was well over 4.5 billion people in the world. So that doesn't really make sense then, does it? No, uh, unless this is like foretelling of some big catastrophic event. But it is 7980. So we have to keep in mind this was during the Cold War. I mean, there were nuclear fallout shelters being built mm-hmm. all over. I mean, between Russia and America, there was a lot of conflict going on and the threat of nuclear war. So is this some nuclear paranoia thing? It was never made clear. There was no reason behind what these were printed. He just said, print this in these languages on these slabs. Wow. So there's also things like unite humanity with a living new language. And I don't think he was saying we all need to speak the same language. I think he was just saying like we all need to communicate together. But again, that's just how I interpret this. You can interpret this in so many different ways. Yeah. It's basically calling for the whole world to come together as one Mm -hmm. unit to work together. But I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, I I don't know what you can really take from it. Everybody, I think, has their own thing. But the big thing, like I said, was that they basically was calling for a 90% reduction in human lives. (laughs) The apocalypse. It's all done. It's all calculated. The work is set to be done. It's all paid for. The land and all the slabs and everything. 
And before construction is set to begin, Christian writes to Martin and tells him, okay, I want you to deed the land and the ownership of the Georgia Guidestones to Elberton County. Oh. So he paid for it all and then he just gave it away. Wow. And then he disappeared. From this point on, R.C. Christian was never seen in Elberton again. So We don't even know if he went out there to see it finished. Oh, no. Before its unveiling, Martin received another letter from Christian and his mysterious group. It was this like rambling letter, more about like the purpose of the group and the purpose of their mission. It talked about problems in the world and the problems that the world is facing in the environment and the government. And it it stated its statement of purpose, quote, we the sponsors of the Georgia Guidestones are a small group of Americans who wish to focus attention on problems central to humanity. We have chosen to remain anonymous in order to avoid debate, which might confuse our meaning and which might delay a considerate review of our thoughts, unquote. But the mysteries don't end there. The Guidestones were unveiled in March of 1980. There was a large group of locals, tourists, newspapers, news crews. It's shown in the documentary Dark Clouds Over Elberton, the true story of the Georgia Guidestones. There's a large black tarp over the monument. Mm -hmm. And when they pull down the tarp, I just got shivers down my spine. I don't know why. I just got this weird, these weird chills. I know it was supposed to be like made for all mankind. It was supposed to be this big positive thing, but I don't know. Something just, something just doesn't sit right with him. I don't, I don't know really? why. That's because yeah, it's. I, don't, I mean, I, don't I see why. a picture of it. It's beautiful. But watching the documentary and watching them tear the black tarp down, it just, I don't, I don't know. It's so weird. Well, maybe because all the mystery behind it too. Besides the guidestones, there is a plaque with another inscription on it. It states the astronomical features. It shares about what they do and what they mean. And it says, author, R.C. Christian, a pseudonym. And it, it's pseudonym with an N at the end. Pseudonym is usually spelt, well, usually is spelt with an M, M at right. the end. But it is pseudonym with an N at the end, which I think is really weird because everything about these guy's stones has been so specific. Right. So detailed. Right. So did he mess up on this or is there meaning behind it? Mm. The plaque also lists the sponsors as a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason. It then says that there is a time capsule placed six feet below the plaque that was placed there. And it says... Time capsule was placed on, and then it's blank. And then it says, and to be opened on blank. Blank. Ooh. Nothing had been buried there to anybody's knowledge. The dates to this day are left blank. Was he meaning to go bury something and he never did? Did he forget about it? Again, he's been so specific about everything. Weird. Did he bury something and like just didn't put the dates there? Did he go out there and like... I mean, they lay cement there under the stone. So I don't, I just, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The Guidestones have brought many to Elberton with its mysteries. Mullinex, the ranch owner, who still li- lives nearby, states that at night he would see people climbing up on the Guidestones. Uh-oh. Placing candles at the top of the capstone. There have been witch covens 
one in particular from Atlanta, that would make a weekly pilgrimage to the site. And apparently, there was a psychic who had her wedding at the Guidestones <laughs> because they had a special energy. Gossip in the town said that Martin and Fendley were Satanists. But oh. I think that gossip started from local granite competitors. I mean, after building this, Fenley got a lot of business. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Six years after the Guidestones were revealed, Martin received a book in the mail written by a Robert Christian. The title of the book was Common Sense Renewed. In the book, the author, who was one and the same as R.C. Christian, mm-hmm wrote about how he admired the author of the original Common Sense, Thomas Paine, and how he admired his ideas. And essentially, in a long tangent in this book, how the world needs to come together for nature, and it's re- it reestablishes the 10 points made on the Guidestones. Now, this book was also sent out to many Georgia politicians, and it was sent out to a lot of people. And eventually, I believe in 2015, a group of people looked into the publishing of this book. They were going to trace it to the publisher Mm -hmm. and see if they could try to trace it to see who this Robert Christian, who this R.C. Christian was. And it was a smaller publishing company. And they traced it to a publisher, Robert Merriman. Is this R.C. Christian? Merriman, though, also had a friend, a Dr. Herbert Kirsten. Mm. And I is that German translation to Christian? Mm. <laughs> what do you mean? Don't you speak German? <laughs> well, Dr. Kirsten had very strong views and had been very vocal on population control in the past. Oh, so that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So they're wondering like if he was RC Christian and then he had it published by this Robert Merriman. But if it is him, there's kind of a negative to this theory because he was also known to be very racist. Oh. So that's a view that a lot of theorists have on these guidestones that yeah, but it says it's to come like, together in diversity and harmony. I know, but a lot of theories have it like that these are that the engravings were instructions to some white supremacist utopia. Oh. Because it mentions like the world court and it says like unite humanity with a living new language and I don't I don't know but a lot of people had the suspicions that it's some kind of a supremacist okay thing world order or was this a group did a group really put this together a group of Christians that really wanted to help guide humankind the group has since supposedly disbanded that's what RC Christian had told Martin it disbanded but who were they were they right were the Guidestones created because of a nuclear paranoia? Conspiracy theorists also theorized that they were built for a new world order of some kind. There was also theories of a call to global government and worshipping of the sun and worshipping of the devil. Hmm. Some wonder if this group behind it all were the Shriner Club members themselves. Oh. The Freemasons that lived in Elberton, who ended up building it and creating it, right. were they behind it? Was R.C. Christian this whole facade? Because very few people really met him. Correct. Oh. There are so many theories and stories to the who's and the why's. We're back to who's, guys. I don't know if we will ever know who R.C. Christian was. Only Wyatt Martin knows that. 
Martin did carry on a relationship with Christian. They wrote letters and he would get random calls from Christian whenever he was in Atlanta and they would meet up for dinner or coffee oh, they or did. something every, okay. every so once in a while. Him. Okay. Mm-hmm. He even got a phone call from Christian's son oh. when R.C. Christian died. Interesting. So they remained close and he had, he was interviewed, Martin was interviewed on the documentary I mentioned earlier. I mean, they were friends. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Martin died in 2021 at the age of 91 and went to his grave, truly keeping his gentleman's agreement. Didn't share anything. So you can go to the Georgia Guidestones. It's free admission. It's open only during daylight hours. It's 1031 Guidestones Road in Elberton, Georgia. You can also, I mean, there's pictures online and we'll post some pictures, but you can even pull up Google Maps and go check it out. I liked doing that because you can see the Guidestones there. You can actually like walk up to the Guidestones on Google Maps and look at it. But then if you do the aerial view, you can see it's X. You can see the X and then you can also see that the five acres that they have marked off for him from the ranch. Mm-hmm. You can see Mullinax's ranch still there. Yeah. And and like Mullinax had grazing rights because he wanted to keep it all maintained around it. So mm-hmm. there would be cows that would graze around the monument to keep it green and clean. <laughs> and, and fertilize it. <laughs> yeah. So I see that they added some lights or something to it. It looks really cool at night. Lit up. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they Okay, so my question is, I was going to ask you, how do they keep people from graffitiing it? Cuz you know See, I saw some pictures of graffiti on it. I I'm seeing that right now. So I think it has been graffitied on. Cuz I'm thinking, god, people graffiti everything now with smiley faces. With smiley faces. <laughs> <laughs> no, Yuck. this doesn't look like smiley faces. No, people have graffitied it. I think they just have had to clean it off. Wow. It's so crazy. I mean, like, what does it mean? What does it mean? And who and who are the people behind it? And isn't it interesting that people go to Satan and then they go to white supremacy and then they go to like world harmony? I mean, everybody's got these wild notions as to what it is. I know. It's like, oh, that item is mysterious. Then it must have to deal with the devil. Exactly. It's like, what if this guy really did just... He had a lot of money and he just, I don't, he just really I, wanted to in his spare time, just wanted to do something fun and kind and yeah. Mm-hmm. Or to I really know, mess, it, miss with people. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of like the modern new age, like 10 commandments. And like I said, I really lean towards the theory. It had to do something with the nuclear paranoia mm. because say there was some big catastrophic event. And it's stating, like, keep the population low. We have to focus on nature. We have to kind of come together in unity. And then he had that pillar that could show them the calendar and, you know, making maps and all that kind of stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. And it had, like, this new Ten Commandments, basically, in different languages. So whoever found it could read it. I see now. I think I'm finally getting it. So, like, if there was, like, an apocalypse or, you know, whatever. Right. Then the people could go here and basically start a new civilization yes from this center yes basically. that's what he was claiming uh, he and his group were creating this for i see i'm finally understanding what you're saying but like why georgia yeah why georgia why i mean no offense origin georgians no offense but, but maybe like, it is the why? center maybe it is the center of the 
earth. Well, in the documentary, I thought it was interesting because I guess his grandma was from the area. R.C. Christian's grandma was from the area or, you know, nearby Elberton. So that's how he knew of Elberton. Oh. And he literally knew that granite was made in Elberton, drove to Elberton and just and then there's several granite facilities there. But he just found one and just randomly walked into it. So it's not like he even did research into it. He was just like, all right, I'm going to go into this one and see if they'll make it for me. (laughs) That is really interesting. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, I can't imagine how much this was. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it is huge. It's beautiful. It really is very, very pretty. The stone is very pretty. That's just crazy. Super bizarre, mom. Super bizarre. Wow, I I'd like to know whether that is the center of the universe or center of well, the world. center of the universe. Universe now, <laughs> we've expanded. Oh boy, <laughs> and Yikes. I want to know what was going on with the crow and the bunny. <laughs> Back I'm to your bizarre bef- story. I'm still befuddled over that one. Wow. Well, thank you. Well, thank you, mom. This Wh- was who'd have a- thought? Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it that there was something like that in this field in Georgia? I know. Wow. Don't know. Don't know. You find all these pillars and all these weird monuments. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I find stories of people hacking people's heads off. So anyway, yeah. thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Cut you hey. off. Buy us a drink for next week's episode, y'all. There's a link to the to different ways you can do that for us. We appreciate it. Love you guys for buying us cocktails. Thank you. We do definitely, definitely enjoy that. So it looks like next week we're going to cover the state of Texas. So if anybody has an idea for a drink, send it our way. Please and thank you. Don't forget to leave those reviews on iTunes to get entered into the sweepstakes we got going on. Oh, that's right. Yes. We have a really fun goodie we want to send to the winner. It's a big gift. I'm excited about it. (laughs) I'd like it. (laughs) I'd love it. So go ahead and leave us the reviews on iTunes. You have until June 1st. Once you do, just email us or message us a picture of the review you left or your screen name or whatever you call screen name. What is this aim? Whatever name you use to you leave the review. Wow. I'm starting to slur. I think it might be time to go. <laughs> Resources and photos for this episode will be on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. Feel free to email us, killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. Even if you just want to say, howdy. (laughs) I always love these bizarre sections because they're so random. I agree. I had so much fun with this one. Well, my sweetheart, you need to get to bed. That little baby is going to wake up early tomorrow morning. It never ends. The vicious cycle of life. Honey, it does. They grow up and then they're adults like you. And so I definitely have not minded early morning wake-ups and late-night wake-ups with this one because I know he's my last and I know it happens way too quickly. Yeah, yeah. And he's so stinking cute. And he's cutting a lot of teeth. Poor guy. He's going to look like a little pumpkin with his little front teeth in. (laughs) Yeah, right now he's got two bottom teeth and one big old snaggle tooth up top. So, (laughs) Man, does he smile real big. Oh, okay. Well, a fun evening. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Yep. 
Cheers, mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.